Draco Malfoy in Slughorn's office with the poisoned mead. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for the clueless. Chamber of Secrets all over again, isn't it? There'll be panic. More parents taking their kids out of school. And next thing you know, the Board of Governors will be talking about shutting us up for good. I mean, it's always been a bit of a risk sending a kid to Hogwarts, hasn't it? You expect accidents, don't you? With hundreds of underage wizards all locked up together. But attempted murder, that's different. I'm Heather Price, right? And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Hi, welcome to The Quibbler, we're back. I am a little less sick, but my voice might still be a little off, so apologies. This week we are reading chapters once again from Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. They are Elf Tales and Lord Voldemort's Request. As usual, spoilers and cursing, you all are used to this drill. Uh, someone's hammering in the apartment next to us, but apparently... Random apartment sounds don't always pick up on the episodes. Yeah, you guys so, can't hear that loud-ass bird, so... Which I'm sorry for. Yeah, it's a, nice it's bird. a good bird, but it's very noisy. We also have some adult themes. This week's adult themes are Ivory Towers, Toxic Masculinity, Sports Medicine, Love Triangles, and Job Interviews. So, Alex, goodness gracious, what happened this week? In this week's chapters, Ron is recovering in the hospital wing after a near-death experience. He was poisoned by some mead that was, wasn't even just slightly off. It was literally poisoned. Fred and George are there visiting. They just happened to be in Hogsmeade because they were working on an acquisition of Zonko's Joke Shop. So that's some fucking entrepreneurship right there. Mergers and acquisitions. Probably the first time in the wizarding world this has ever happened, it seems like. Uh, although they're very concerned because Hogsmeade's visits have been cancelled after what happened to Katie Bell, so uh, they are worried that it will be a bad investment. But what they should do is buy it at a lower value, anticipating that Hogsmeade visits will resume. So, little little free advice. I could basically be a business consultant <laughs> in the wizarding world. They should bring me in to manage this deal. Hermione is also there visiting Ron in the hospital wing. She's deeply shaken by what happened. Harry, Ginny, Fred, and George discuss theories about who could have poisoned the mead and who they were after. Um, I think Fred and George suggest maybe it was Slughorn himself, but... Harry doesn't find that very plausible, but nobody knows who the target was or what their motive was. Mr. and Mrs. Weasley show up. Arthur thanks Harry for saving Ron's life. He says, it seems like half our family owes you their lives, uh, which if Harry wasn't in their lives, they wouldn't be having near-death experiences on a regular basis, but whatever. It's like Elmo Saves Christmas, when Elmo just breaks Christmas and then has to right his wrongs. Dude, yeah, seriously. Uh, have y'all seen Elmo Saves Christmas? Elmo doesn't save Christmas. Elmo Saves Christmas is basically the plot of Cursed Child. <laughs> uh, it's Elmo has to save Christmas from himself. Uh, go watch it. I... Should people watch it? I don't know. It's pretty charming, I guess. No, it's about Elmo. I mean, it's not for grown-ups. <laughs> like, 
probably not. No, the, if you uh, have the, little kids the watch bad it and guy, then explain to them. The bad guy from the Muppet movie plays Santa Claus. Oh, really? Doc Hopper. That's so scary. Santa, no, but he's nice Santa, though. I know, but Doc Hopper's terrifying to the Muppets. But he, he's their enemy. Yeah, but he's Santa in no. this universe. He's their enemy. <laughs> Across all universes of Muppets. <laughs> What's that actor's name? I don't know. Doc to Hopper. To me, he's just Doc Hopper. I'm Doc Hopper. Uh, French fried frog legs. The rest of this episode will be devoted to discussing the Muppet, the Muppet movie. movie and whether it takes place in the same universe as the Sesame Street characters. I think it does. Because all Big Muppets, Bird appears all Muppets are in the, same in the Muppet movie. Yeah. Sesame Street is a place that exists in the Muppet universe. Yeah, I think you're right. It's Any- like a subset of the Muppet universe. You feel very strongly about this. I feel very strongly about the Muppets. <laughs> I could make a Muppet podcast easily. Wow. You know that. Yeah, I know. I fucking love those guys. Um. Anyway... I would say it's debatable whether or not the Weasleys owe their lives to Harry Potter or whether or not Harry Potter is sort of the author of their troubles. Although I guess no Harry Potter, then Voldemort rules everything and the Weasleys would probably be fucked. So, I don't know. Some good, some bad. It's probably all a wash, but they like Harry, so it's good that he's in their lives. I I mean, the plot of Cursed Child basically breaks the entire Harry Potter universe, so... We're gonna get to this. We've both seen it now. Thanks to a very generous Christmas gift from my sister. But we'll get there. But we'll get there. Hagrid also shows up to visit Ron in the hospital wing. Basically, just, like, people just keep showing up in this fucking hospital scene to, like... Forward the plot. Forward the plot, which I guess is how books work. But, uh, Hagrid has been visiting Aragog. He's getting sicker. Hagrid's been reading to Aragog, which... Aragog doesn't like that. Was Aragog, like, reading books before, and now he can't? I guess he has a lot of, like, eyes to read with. <laughs> He's, like, blind, though, right? Now he is. That's what, why like, Hagrid has to read to him. I know, but did Aragog just all of a sudden, like, develop, like, an appetite for literature? Or is Hagrid just kind of easing Aragog's passing? I don't know. Because the other spiders, I don't think they're big readers. <laughs> anyway. <but. laughs> I don't know why this line struck me, but Hagrid is described as leaving dolphin-sized muddy footprints in the hospital wing. That seems like an exaggeration. I, I love the... I just love the phrase dolphin-sized. That's like <laughs> such a like... Whatever. I, I liked that. Hagrid lets slip that Dumbledore is angry with Snape because that's what Hagrid does. Uh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Hagrid overheard a conversation in which Snape tells Dumbledore that he doesn't want to do something anymore. So that's some intrigue. Harry and Hermione leave the hospital wing with Hagrid. Filch threatens them with detention because they're out of bed. Uh, Mrs. Norris, who we haven't seen in a while, shows up. Uh, Here's the description. Mrs. Norris had arrived unseen and was twisting herself sinuously around Filch's skinny ankles. Definitely his lover. Catwife. Uh, sorry. We're so deep into the summary already, and I'm probably three pages in. Okay. This one might set a record. Alright, well, just do what you can. <laughs> to be fair, we talked about the Muppets for, like, five minutes. That's true. When Harry gets back to the Gryffindor common room, he's immediately confronted by Cormac McClagan, who is like, so, uh, heard you're looking for a new keeper. Actually, he's even more direct than that. He's like, so I'm playing keeper in the next game, right? Uh, Harry is like, uh, sure, bro. I've got a lot of other shit 
on my mind. Lavender Brown is angry because nobody told her Ron was in the hospital. She also wants to have lots of talks with Harry about Ron's feelings. And Harry's like, look, I don't do feelings. Ron has also been pretending that he's asleep when Lavender comes to visit her. So Harry's like, dude, what the fuck is up with that? Uh, Lavender also wants to know if Hermione Granger is still seeing him in the hospital. So, drama. Quidditch practice with Cormac goes terribly. As Hermione predicted, he's not a great uh, culture fit. He basically tries to mansplain Quidditch to everyone. The day of the match arrives uh, as he's heading down to the pitch. Harry sees Draco skulking around the castle. He's not going to the match yet again, and there are two Slytherin girls with him who don't really look like they want to be there. Maybe because he's Draco Malfoy, maybe for some other reason. Time will tell. Harry basically just asks Draco what he's up to, and Draco's like, and Draco says, like, I would tell you, uh, and he also, this might be Draco's worst insult in the entire seven-book Harry Potter cycle. You'd better hurry up, Draco said. They'll be waiting for the chosen captain, the boy who scored, whatever they call you these days. The boy who scored? Ugh. That's not really an insult, is no, it? No, it's not. <laughs> The boy who's getting so much action that everyone thinks he's awesome, or whatever they call you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what? The boy who scored? Would be a hilarious nickname. Also, he does score the most points, because he's the fucking seeker. Um, not this time. Not. He does seek, but he does not find. <laughs> The match goes extremely badly. Luna Lovegood is also the announcer now and spends most of the game pointing out interesting clouds. McLaggen spends the entire match just shouting at the other Gryffindor team members, and at one point he grabs one of the beater's bats to, like, demonstrate how to properly hit a bludger. He mishits the bludger, which then hits Harry, knocking him unconscious, and he wakes up in, of course, the bu bu motherfucking hospital wing with a cracked skull, and Ron is like, LOL, fancy seeing you here, mate. <laughs> Harry's just like, god fucking damn it, hospital wing again. Harry fumes over A, the fact that they lost the match, and B, that he missed his opportunity to catch Malfoy in the act. He thinks to himself that he wishes he could have Malfoy followed the same way that like the Ministry is having like Dumbledore tailed. But then, Harry remembers, Oh shit, I own a literal slave! Who I can tell to do whatever I want. So Harry summons Creature, who is in the middle of a fistfight with Dobby, being egged on by Peeves, who is basically saying, Fight, 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 fight! But in his, like, weird, rhymy, Peevesy way. Harry gives Creature very specific instructions to follow Draco, so that he won't, like, tip Draco off in the process. The next day, as Harry's leaving the hospital wing, he learns that Dean and Ginny had a fight, so that entices the, uh, weird sex monster that's living inside his chest. Ron runs into Lavender, who is looking furious. Nevertheless, he has breakfast with her, but he looks very sullen, so Ron may have survived being poisoned, but now he's in a toxic relationship. <laughs> Hermione, meanwhile, seems quietly pleased. She's so pleased that she finishes Harry's herbology homework for him. Girl, don't do that. I mean, honest to God, been there. <laughs> 
You never did my homework. You didn't need me to. That's true. Have Actually, that's debatable. Did you do my homework once? I don't think you ever did. No, I think I did your homework for our shared um, Latin American cinema class. No way. I totally either didn't do my homework or I helped did it. you write your paper. Really? Yeah. I don't remember. You didn't go to class ever, so I took all your notes for you for sure. Yeah, but there wasn't like a test. Yeah, but there were papers. Right. I think I got a B in that class. So really? I think so. God, you went to like half the classes. I may have even gotten an A. That's if very I got... annoying. <laughs> that is very... You guys, it was a morning class and Alex was still in his who gives a fuck about school phase, which was like sort of intermittent and irritating. And I always went to class and you went like half the time. Sometimes you walked me to class and then didn't go in. Really? Yeah. I don't remember. This was very early in our relationship. It was Why like, did you keep dating me? I saw Upside. Good investment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, back to Harry Potter. We're just, we're all over the place, man. We're in, it's January. We're... Cold. Yeah. Uh, Harry also gets a note that it's time for another lesson with Dumbledore. So Harry heads up to see Dumbledore. Professor Trelawney is there. She's arguing with Dumbledore about Ferenz. She's still pissed that he's teaching because she thinks he's a horse's ass. <laughs> Trelawney leaves. Dumbledore tells Harry, hey, I can't let either of them go because they'd both be in danger. Ferenz because he's been banished. Trelawney because she made the prophecy about you even though she doesn't know she made it. So all the Death Eaters are like out for her. So that's scary. Yeah. Dumbledore asks Harry if he got the memory from Slughorn. Harry's like, you know, I try, but I was like doing other stuff, like playing sports and like thinking about girls. Dumbledore is like, you had one job. <laughs> Harry literally had one job uh, to get that memory, and he did not. Dumbledore says, if you don't get the memory, the rest of our lessons will be pointless. Nevertheless, he has two more memories to show Harry, but first he gives Harry some more background on the young Lovo Chronicles. So, Lovo headed into his last year, he graduated top of his class, everybody expected great things, but instead he ended up sort of like knocking around and like working at a thrift store. <laughs> Borgen and Burks, to be specific. He did ask Professor Dippet, however, if he could stay on as Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, but Dippet rebuffed him because Lovo lacked experience, although he did put on his resume that he was proficient in Microsoft Wand. Oh my god. <laughs> you were excited about that I one. I was very excited. <laughs> Excelliarmus! Oh god. It Little, clippy jumps up. It looks like you're trying to perform a spell. <laughs> clippy, what are horcruxes? <laughs> So, with that out of the way, Dumbledore and Harry dive back into the pensive. It's a memory from a house elf named Hokey. In this memory, this is back when Tom Riddle was working as a buyer for Borgen and Burks. He's at this woman, this very rich old woman named Hepzibah Smith's house. Lovo has gone the Max Bialystok route. And he's just like charming old ladies to get good <laughs> deals on their antiques. So he shows up, he brings the woman flowers, she's very, like, flattered because Tom is, like, a hot tamale. He's there to, like, inquire about some goblin-made armor, but then she's like, I want to show you some stuff, Tom, because I know you'll appreciate the history, and she, like, likes his attention, and, you know. 
Tom is uh, using his smoldering good looks to his advantage. Hepzibah shows Tom, but 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 motherfucking Helga Hufflepuff's cup and but 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 motherfucking Slytherin's lockets. Two incredible treasures linked to founders of Hogwarts. So Tom is incredibly intrigued. He like touches each relic and like whispers something kind of softly to himself. He's like, Hufflepuff's cup. And his eyes flash like red for a second, which is spooky. The memory ends. Dumbledore tells Harry that a few days later, Hepzibah Smith turned up dead and that Hokey, the house elf, was arrested for the murder for allegedly poisoning her evening cocoa. But it was obviously fucking Voldemort. Voldemort then took a gap year, which turned into a gap decade. Lovo vanishes, nobody, he like resigns Borgen and Burks, nobody knows what happened to him, but then he turns up again, however many years later, uh, and that's the next memory. It's Dumbledore's memory. Dumbledore is sitting in his office, and in walks Voldemort. He's obviously gotten like really into body mod. He, uh, <laughs> he looks sort of like, his features look sort of burned and blurred and like waxy, even though he doesn't have the whole like snake-like vibe yet. His pupils were all, like, bloody. Maybe he's just high as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Lovo was just, like, doing, like, a wake and bake. Lovo wants to apply for a teaching job. Oh, Dumbledore is now the headmaster. Dumbledore insists on calling him Tom, even though he's now known by another name. Lovo says he's been out in the world, like, pushing the boundaries of magic. Dumbledore says, yeah, he's heard of what he's been up to, and he'd be sad if even half of it was true. Lovo says he can teach his students incredible things. Um, magic, madness, heaven, sin, that kind of stuff. Um, oh, God. But Dumbledore is like, yeah, but you still don't understand other kinds of magic. Lovo is like, what? The power of love? Not seeing it. Uh, but Dumbledore is firm. Tom leaves disappointed and uh, heads back to the Hogshead bar where his like Death Eaters are waiting for him. End scene, Dumbledore tells Harry he thinks Lovo wanted the job so that he could build an army at the school. Harry asks if he was applying once again for the Defense Against the Dark Arts job. Yes, Dumbledore says, and ever since, we haven't been able to keep a Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher for more than one year. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. Woof, that was long. So what do you want to do first? Teen romance? Let's do teen romance. Bronn is being such a fuckboy when it comes to Lavender Brown. Meanwhile, Lavender kept sidling up to Harry to discuss Ron, which Harry found almost more wearing than McLagan's Quidditch lectures. At first, Lavender had been very annoyed that nobody had thought to tell her that Ron was in the hospital wing. I mean, I am his girlfriend. But unfortunately, she had now decided to forgive Harry this lapse of memory and was keen to have lots of in-depth chats with him about Ron's feelings a most uncomfortable experience that Harry would have happily foregone. Look, why don't you talk to Ron about all this? Harry asked, after a particularly long interrogation from Lavender that took in everything from precisely what Ron had said about her new dress robes to whether or not Harry thought that Ron considered his relationship with Lavender to be serious. Well, I would, but he's always asleep when I go and see him said Lavender fretfully. Is he? said Harry, surprised, 
for he had found Ron perfectly alert every time he had been up to the hospital wing. I mean, it's not super serious, but, like, he shouldn't be pretending to be asleep. That's a real, like, cowardly move. Just, like, break up with her. Which, Harry actually gives him that advice. It's, like, decent advice. It's, like, one of Harry's only moments of good relationship advice. Also, Lavender's reactions are, they're really logical. Oh, yeah. Nobody told her that her, like, boyfriend was in the hospital wing. Yeah. Almost dying. It's... Not just for, like, a Quidditch injury. Almost died. Well, also, Quidditch injuries often almost kill people. That's but yes, tr- that's point true. taken. <laughs> no, Lavender is behaving totally rationally. Lavender is not doing anything stupid or annoying by thinking that it's a dick move for Harry and Hermione and Ron's entire family to just completely ignore the fact that Ron has a fucking girlfriend who should probably know that he is really, really sick. I mean, I get that nobody thinks that this is, like, forever, although in the wizarding world, everyone seems to just marry their first or second high school girlfriend, so maybe it is. Yeah, Um. God, who knows? (laughs) But, like, a heads up, I think would have been appropriate. I but, agree. Yeah, Lavender's Lavender's feelings here are treated very like she's depicted as being like hysterical and right. like overbearing, but I think I think it's normal. She's not even particularly aggressive about it. She's just like, uh, it would have been helpful to know. Like basically she's saying, I am actually his girlfriend. You might not be into that fact, but He clearly is because he wants to snog me 24-7 and somebody probably should have told me this. Yeah. There is nothing dumb about that take. You should tell someone's girlfriend when they're in the hospital. (laughs) That's not a ridiculous ask that she has. And we have that so many times where Lavender's feelings are treated as inherently silly and insubstantial and like unnecessary. I guess just because we're supposed to know that Hermione's his great love. But even then, not being with your great love doesn't mean that the person that you're with in the interim just automatically sucks. It's just none of this is Lavender's fault. And Hermione in particular is being incredibly unkind, taking this out on Lavender, who, as we have mentioned before, has done nothing wrong here. She dated someone who wanted to kiss her a bunch. And she thought it was mildly inappropriate not to be told that he was near death. And J.K. Rowling does this. She equates what we might think about as stereotypically feminine emotions with being an unserious person, with being a person whose emotions aren't valid and totally invalidates the very genuine and very normal experiences that more girly girl types have. Like Hermione's feelings are more real Because she happens to have a certain kind of personality and performs femininity in a certain way. Hermione's being so fucking mean to Lavender for no reason. And Hermione is portrayed as being in the right. Like her dumb smugness about the fact that Ron is being a dick to Lavender is mean. That's not... Yeah, it's not kind. It's not at all a good look for Hermione. And, and her, she's, You know, Hermione's usually a pretty empathetic and kind no, character. No, not to other girls. Not to other, no. not to other girls? She, remember when the rabbit dies? Oh, yeah. When Lavender's bunny dies? And she's like, what the fuck is the problem? Bunnies die. And Lavender's like, 
uh, what is the actual matter with you? <laughs> I forgot about that. No, dude, Hermione Lavender gets a raw a deal in these bitch to other girls. Lavender is a raw she's deal in these like, books. She's like not great to Cho. She kind no, of helps. She sticks up for Cho. She kind of helps Harry understand Cho's feelings, but she doesn't feel any like kinship with Cho. Hmm. So she's more of a guy's girl. Which, she has male friends, and that's fine. That's not inherently bad, but she's mean to other girls. She's nice to Ginny, but Ginny is similar to Hermione. Ginny is not girly. Interesting. Although she gets plenty of guys, so she's doing something sort of performatively right, I guess. Just flipping her red hair around. Yeah, I I mean, whatever, she's hot. And you know, the other thing is Hermione's not portrayed as typically hot. So she's clearly like at least kind of got a chip on her shoulder about that. Which, you know, girls are mean, but boys are meaner in this particular instance. I have another question about this, something I've been wondering about this little sequence. So this seems to be like an epiphany moment for Ron, and I'm wondering... Epiphany how? Well, he seems to have, like, decided that he no longer likes Lavender, which is fine. He's, like... Entitled. Yeah, he's totally within his rights to do that, but he seems to have also, like in a way, come to grips with the fact that he is in love with Hermione. And I'm wondering, is that just because of the near-death experience? Or is there something about, like, him experiencing the love potion, which showed him, like, what kind of, like, fake, obsessive love feels like? Maybe he's contrasting that with how he felt about, like, Lavender for a minute. That's and, actually an and interesting now he's, thought. Like, now he's, like... Oh, I wasn't really into Lavender, Lavender, because now he's had this, like, weird mind trip of, like, being incredibly into Ramilda Vane for, like, 45 minutes. The love potion seems to have maybe clarified things for him. It's sort of similar to when people do LSD or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it clarifies their thinking. You hear people talk about psychedelic trips and say changing my worldview in that really dramatic way but fairly briefly helped me understand what I think or what I believe or how I feel about the universe or got in touch with feelings in a way that was really new to me. So it does almost seem like he's had like a trip and it has changed his thought processes or it has clarified his thought processes. But I also think it's probably the fact that he sort of realizes in this really primal way because there's that scene where he's muttering Hermione's name in his sleep and Mm -hmm. everybody's super thick and (laughs) doesn't realize that that's what he's doing and they're just like, ugh, Ron's just like mumbling. But he's saying Hermione. And so he has understood on this sort of like below consciousness level that that's who he wants near him. In this moment. He's craving her presence in this moment of real vulnerability and fear. I mean, that's real. Oh, totally. That's real as hell. His feelings for Hermione are super real. Do I think that they make a good match? I I continue to assert that no, they don't make a great match, at least not right now in their lives. But he loves her really deeply and he wants her near him in this moment of intense fear. And she loves him. Yeah, I don't doubt that they love each other. There's a toxicity there. We've been hard on them, but they're... Their feelings are real. Their affection for each other is real. But ultimately pretty toxic yeah it makes them both behave like buffoons (laughs) and it makes them both rude and mean and very obnoxious which whatever i guess love does to you so 
swinging in the opposite direction gender-wise, let's talk about this utter fucking bullshit from Cormac McLaggen. <laughs> this guy is, as John Ralphio would say, the worst. <laughs> Harry stared around for the snitch. There was no sign of it. Moments later, Cadwallad scored. McLaggen had been shouting criticism at Ginny for allowing the quaffle out of her possession, with the result that he had not noticed the large red ball soaring past his right ear. McLaggen, will you pay attention to what you're supposed to be doing and leave everyone else alone? bellowed Harry, wheeling around to face his keeper. You're not setting a great example, McLaggen shouted back, red-faced and furious. And Harry Potter's now having an argument with his keeper said Luna serenely, while both Hufflepuffs and Slytherins below in the crowd cheered and jeered. I don't think that'll help him find the snitch, but maybe it's a clever ruse. Swearing angrily, Harry spun around and set off around the pitch again, scanning the skies for some sign of the tiny winged golden ball. Um... We finally do have a D, not even a villain, but you know, one of these, kind of a villain. like a D-list villain, that is stereotypically, yeah, masculine. Like, that has, like, that's just like a bro, like a douchebag, you know? Like, a lot of the, the like, side characters that are sort of obstacles tend to have more, like, stereotypically, like, like feminine attributes. Like, even Gilderoy Lockhart is, like, vain and... Self-absorbed mm-hmm. and pretty. very into, yeah, pretty. yeah. No, Carmack McLaggen is the waving out of the dictionary uh, next to the entry toxic masculinity. <laughs> but you know, like a lot of the bad guys are sort of like, they're either a fet or... They have that kind of Jafar deal. Mm-hmm. Like it's the very like sinister queerness yeah. kind of characterization. Even Voldemort in a lot of ways, we don't think of as masculine in particular. Right. But, I mean, obviously Cormac McLaggen isn't a real villain. Right, right. But he is definitely a thorn in the side of the main characters. And he is, this scene is so funny and also enraging. (laughs) It is so frustrating to read this Quidditch match. Harry always loses to Hufflepuff. Dude, that is, that's a hilarious little just touch from Rowling. Right, because Hufflepuff is this kind of like neutered, sweet, puffy house but i guess that's what makes his losses so like so devastating because they're always this like major setback for harry so but, like losing losing to hufflepuff the ultimate indignity it's but like also, losing to the phoenix suns oh no but also <laughs> hufflepuff like but also hufflepuff quietly has these really solid quidditch teams like zachariah smith is a douche but seems pretty good Oh, and he's a douchebag too. There's another. That's douchey, true. Yeah, There's two douchey kind of guys douchey here. Guy bro, Huffle Bros. McLaggen is actually to me bro. kind of a classic Gryffindor. Yes, he is. He's the perfect encapsulation of everything that is fucking irritating about Gryffindor. <laughs> he's braggadocious. He is a jock and kind of a meathead, and has just a really outsized sense of his own ability and importance, which is, to me, very kind of the dark side of Gryffindor. I like that it's nice that not all the, like, good athletes are, like... Also good people. Like, 
Well, I, I mean, I like that Harry and friends aren't just like the stereotypical nerds that aren't good at sports, you know, but it's nice that we also get a this truly kinda... obnoxious athlete yeah, type. You know, because so far, most of the athletes, with the exception of the Slytherins, have been like fairly heroic. So. Yeah, I and, think like, she's very actually. Likeable. She's super fair about. Uh... She's balanced about the cliques that kids are in, not necessarily saying things about their character, with the express exception of Slytherin, who are all monster people. <laughs> and that's a whole other conversation. But you're right. She does a nice job with kids with different sort of interests and skills and personalities all being fine. For Quidditch being such a weird sport, she's really good at the like nuances of like why people play sports and like what appeals to them about it. She does sport really well. Yeah, despite the fact that Quidditch itself is fucking nonsense. I love when Cormac says, I've got some strategy ideas for you, Harry. And Harry's like, yeah, catch the yeah, goddamn what snitch. The, what are the strategies? The strategies are, <laughs> you don't let anyone get up by 150, I catch the snitch. <laughs> that is how this game is played. I've been thinking about it real hard. Um, That's probably as hard as he can think. <laughs> He doesn't seem like the sharpest tool in the shed. Fucking Cormac. So Hagrid does this sort of everyman thing where he makes this hilarious comment. He's like, turns out Hogwarts is actually pretty dangerous. <laughs> like he basically says parents kind of know that their kids might not come out of here alive because magic, but it's gotten worse. Finally, somebody acknowledges it. Everyone was thinking it. Hagrid said it. But Hagrid says it as kind of a an offhanded, we all know this, and I guess it's not that big a deal to anyone that it's really fucking dangerous. It's book six, man. Rowling is like letting her hair down. Yeah. So Hagrid also makes the entirely inaccurate claim that if Dumbledore knew who was planning these attacks, he would put a stop to it, which is a great underscoring of the fact that Dumbledore is definitely letting kids almost die because he has this sort of like grand plot between him and Snape that has a lot of side casualties. Yeah, I mean, Dumbledore does know what's up. Unless I'm completely misremembering this book, he knows that Draco was up to something. Dumbledore knows exactly what's happening yeah, here. And Dumbledore and Snape have agreed that Snape will so-called help Draco do what he's trying to do, and if he doesn't succeed, Snape will do it himself. Right. Dr Dumbledore knows, as far as I remember, Dumbledore knows this whole plot. Yeah, so, and kids are like... Almost dying. Almost dying. And Dumbledore and is Dumbledore's not doing like, anything <laughs> about it. Dumbledore is basically yelling at Snape, being like, he needs to be more careful, and he needs to only kill me. I mean, Katie Bell... Is traumatized forever now. Yeah, I so mean, is she Ron. Like had a fucking curse. Yeah, Ron was so traumatized that he like finally was able to like reconcile. <laughs> I mean himself to his own feelings. I guess that's a bad example because that's sort of a good side it's a effect. Terrible outcome though. He was poised. He was almost died. No, I know. I mean, it's a good outcome from a really terrible Dude, experience. Yeah. Ha Hagrid is uh, once again just giving. Just giving Dumbledore way too much credit. I guess when you have, like, super rad magic medicine, maybe you're not as concerned about but kids it's, getting hurt. It's but... completely random that neither of these kids died. Right, yeah, Katie easily, if Katie had, like... 
touched put, it with one more finger. Right, she would have straight up died. And so. if there hadn't happened to be a Bezoar stone... Bezoar. I finally... I went back and listened. Okay, well, Jim that's Dale what Jim Bezoar. Dale says. Who knows what's I right. I say Bezoar. You say Bezoar. Let's call the whole Let's thing off. Let's call the whole pod off. So, Harry uses his slave <laughs> oh man i had completely forgotten about this part i was just like on the treadmill listening to jim dale and i was thinking is harry really gonna go there he yes super does. he goes there it's like ah, ah. uh is this ethical of harry fuck no i guess obviously in the context of the wizarding world no one would look askance but I don't know if I don't know if summoning creature and having him do his dirty work is a good idea because well, it's obviously not. Creature has already royally fucked up the entire order of the phoenix. <laughs> he honestly the dumb thing is that he doesn't just let Dobby do it alone. Yeah, Dobby is completely game. Dobby is so loyal to Harry Potter. Dobby is like if I do this wrong, I will throw myself off of the topmost tower Dobby, of the castle. T- Toby takes it from zero to like a hundred. He's, he's like offering to like commit <laughs> ritualized suicide. And Harry's like, I think I'm okay. Yeah, don't do that. But, but he should obviously let Dobby do this instead of Creature. Creature is not trustworthy. We gives Creature all these really specific instructions so that he doesn't like tip off Draco and Creature says, oh, Master thinks of everything. Uh, Harry did not think of everything. Well, it's also- Harry needs to like... You need, like, a lawyer to, like, draft these house elf statements because Harry just said you can't tell Draco. Harry didn't say you can't He said can't you can't to- tell anyone. No, he says or anyone oh, else. Or anyone else. Well, there's other things he could write it down. I mean, yeah, he covers a lot of bases, but Creature could lie about what he sees Draco doing. Oh, yeah. He doesn't no. say, and he- you have to tell me the truth, Creature. I just don't think... Creature's just like a fucking monkey's paw. There's no, like... There's no things way... Are, something's gonna go wrong. He's gonna find the loophole. I guess Creature doesn't, but... Does he not? I don't remember what Creature does. We're gonna find I, out. I just feel like Creature's gonna do something fucked up. And just let Dobby do it. This is just a bad... I, I don't know. I know that he can't, like, free Creature or whatever, but, uh... It's a bad plan. And it's, it's a bad look to use your slave. <laughs> I know! Which he's immediately reminded of in the next chapter when he sees the hokey experience. Oh, yeah. Because he thinks to him, when he learns about how Voldemort frames hokey and how basically hokey, like, doesn't even get her day in court, he thinks to himself that he's never felt more sympathetic toward Spew and Hermione's views on house elves. But it doesn't stop him from continuing to give Creature this terrible job. I mean, it's just dangerous, and it's kind of cruel, because Creature really fucking hates Harry Potter. Also, so... Creature could get really hurt. If Creature gets caught, Draco Malfoy will definitely kill a house elf. Oh, yeah? Like, there's not... that Creature... This is a very unsafe task for a house elf. Although, house elves don't have a high likelihood of getting caught, because they're, like, very subtle. I have one more thought about Creature. So, Creature and Dobby are teleported into the hospital wing mid fist fight because Creature has been bad-mouthing Harry Potter and uh, Dobby, of course, won't stand for that. I'm curious what you think here. Do you think Creature has a right to hate Harry Potter's guts? Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely think Creature has a right. I mean, I think slaves have a right to hate their masters. You right. don't have to like your servitude. Right. 
I think Creature hates Harry Potter for fucked up reasons. Right. He hates Harry Potter because he's like a blood traitor or whatever. Creature's complicated. Creature's an incredibly complicated character. I mean, but also Creature is brainwashed. So I think Creature's bigotry is different from that of a wizard with power over Creature. He has like internalized... Well, he clearly has internalized self-hatred because right. wizards look down on house elves. So Creature is a member of a an oppressed class who is experiencing that oppression as hatred of the other, other oppressed classes basically, which is pretty common and understandable and not moral. But also Harry Potter's a dick to Creature and absolutely deserves Creature's hatred. Yeah, I don't know. This is like... An interesting relationship. And it gets much more interesting, obviously, in the next book. And we will see what happens when you actually treat house elves like fully formed beings. Yeah. Which he doesn't even really do with Dobby. Dobby's kind of a mascot to them. And Dobby, I mean, Dobby literally gives his life for this group of people. Yeah. And never gets his due until his burial. it's awful the way Dobby is treated is awful he's so I mean he would do anything for Harry Potter and Harry doesn't give him any real socks but he doesn't he doesn't give him any like real love or like place in his life yeah he's just sort of there when Harry needs him I think creature super has the right to hate Harry I would hate Harry if I were creature let's talk about Draco Malfoy uh just briefly Harry's Draco obsession, I get it. Draco's up to no good. In this case, he's up to about the worst thing you could possibly be up to. He's trying to kill Dumbledore. I find that to be a nice juxtaposition with the other books because Draco is so hapless and ultimately unimportant. Yeah. They're constantly suspecting Draco. And this time, Draco is really doing the worst thing that any of the wizards on the side of right can fathom. But he's not meant to succeed. Yeah, I mean, Draco is such a weird... Not weird. Draco's always this red herring. And it's sort of a tragedy for Draco. Not a tragedy. Because Draco sees himself as very, like, important. And he hates being in, like, the shadow of Harry Potter. But even now that he has this important task from the Dark Lord, it's to kill him. Yeah, Draco... (laughs) Draco's unimportant. And his sense that this is really his, like, great moment to become a true Death Eater and avenge his father and sort of save the Malfoy name as a 17-year-old is massively sad because... Voldemort doesn't want Draco to actually kill Dumbledore. He wants Dumbledore to kill Draco, essentially. Or to, like, Draco to fail and him to have an excuse to kill Draco. To, it's just a fuck yeah, with the Malfoys. It's just Voldemort trolling wants the Malfoys. To, yeah, he is just trolling the Malfoys. But at the same time, you know, now that we've seen Cursed Child, it sort of complicates our view of the books, which I think is sort of one of the worst and best things about Cursed Child is... I sort of didn't ever want to know what they turned out as grown how they turned out as grown-ups because it it clouds my understanding of their actions as kids. Right. And Draco's spoiler warning, I guess everybody understands that we're going to spoil everything, right? Like We're going to spoil Cursed Child. Yeah. We're not going to hashtag keep the secrets. Yeah, sorry. 
marketing department of <laughs> Rolling Ink, Draco's depicted as very sympathetic in Cursed Child. He's like wholly redeemed. Mm-hmm. Which, given that he tried to do this... And got Katie Bell, nearly killed Katie Bell, nearly kills Ron Weasley. He's never really brought to justice no there's no truth and reconciliation with any of the death eaters draco does bad things really really bad things and he does them on purpose and Mm -hmm. he doesn't care willfully about the other students that he is fine with killing yeah that's not a good person that's not a person who's just sort of like following orders because he's afraid that something bad will happen to his family he's not being careful with other children's lives i mean the characterization certainly makes sense in some ways i think draco is more enthusiastic than lucius about being a death eater yeah because draco doesn't really understand the kind of power plays the consequences well that is part of it he's a teenager so what voldemort is doing that's really evil here is taking advantage of the fact that draco can't make really very sound decisions yet his like prefrontal cortex isn't all the way developed (laughs) and he isn't thinking clearly about what this actually means and therefore he's very easily manipulated into into ruining his own and others lives but also he's enough of a grown-up that he should know that this is bad murder is bad yeah i don't know just draco to me i've never found him to be a fully satisfying villain because until this book, and I guess that is like sort of interesting that in this book he is like genuinely somewhat threatening, although it's sort of neutered by the fact that Draco is kind of a victim of Lord Voldemort. But throughout the entire series, he he's more of an annoyance to Harry Potter than not than like something worse you know I'm... like he just like he just kind of makes harry's life shitty he's like an interesting way to illustrate the cultural rot in the wizarding world see i disagree with you yeah i think draco is so ideally suited to make harry potter crazy that he actually becomes a really significant obstacle in this book but not because of what he's trying to do, but because of the fact that Harry can't stop obsessing over Draco. Right. Well, that's just Harry getting in his own way. But not really. Harry is very susceptible to something like Draco. Harry is obsessed with proving himself and with stopping plots, and Voldemort knows that. Voldemort has set up an obstacle for Harry Potter. Oh, that's interesting. More than an actual threat to Dumbledore. Draco obsesses Harry, and it keeps Harry from doing the most important thing he has to do here. his job, yeah. And Dumbledore is seeing that and is really fucking annoyed. He's like, you have to cool it with Draco Malfoy. That guy's a tool, and he's not very good at whatever it is he's up to, so chill out about Draco, and Harry cannot chill out about Draco Malfoy, and he's never been able to, and it's always clouded his judgment. Draco absolutely clouds Harry's judgment Every single time he has a role in a plot. Yeah, I guess. Well, Lupin sort of compares it to Snape and, and Sirius. Snape and Sirius and which, James. Which, like, that gets, that gets Sirius straight up killed. Right, and it's nasty in the long term. Right. 
But I think Draco is an instrumental obstacle to Harry Potter, not because he's a particularly effective villain, right. but because he just pushes every single one of Harry's buttons. Right. And it works really well, and it distracts Harry from very important work in a way that at least sets back the most important thing that he does in these books. Yeah, So yeah, I guess you're right. I don't know. I think Draco plays an interesting role as not a true 100% scary Death Eater, but this like really effective and constant thorn in Harry's side. And Harry hates Draco more than he hates a lot of the like grown up baddies in a way that is very recognizable because teens care more about each other than about adults. Yeah. Teens think their own dramas and their own interpersonal relationships are much more important and interesting than whatever grown-ups have going on. He'd rather have a conversation with Voldemort, probably. Than Draco? If he knew that Voldemort wasn't just going to, like, try to Avada Kedavra him. Yeah, I totally <laughs> I mean, maybe not, because Voldemort killed his fucking parents. But, you know, he definitely, there's definitely more of a visceral And it's the way hatred. that, it's the way that teenagers never think that grown-ups are in love in the same way that teenagers are in love with each other. Yeah. It doesn't occur to them that their parents might feel as deeply about one another as Lavender feels toward Ron. They just have a lot of trouble getting outside of their own conflicts. Maybe it's a stupid take that Harry would be more... In- that Harry would rather hang out with Voldemort than Draco. I actually think that's probably true. Do you think that's true? Not like... I think Harry... No, Okay. I think Harry could be calmer in a conversation with Voldemort than with Draco. Like more reason, like... Like more on his feet. I think Draco infuriates him in a really specific way that keeps him from being able to use good judgment. And that happens in Cursed Child. Yeah. That that kind of continues. Fucking Draco. But Draco is a nothing burger. Ultimately... He just... He doesn't fucking matter. He doesn't like alter the course of history... Really? No, he doesn't. In any way? He doesn't. Despite the fact that he deeply wants to. And that's an interesting juxtaposition. Because he wants to be important the way Harry Potter is important. And he thinks this is his moment. And he's just not. He's like, I'm about to do a thing that will make me famous in dark circles the way Harry Potter is famous in, like, Dumbledore circles. Yeah. And he's just wrong. And Voldemort has no intention of that being the case. He doesn't want to make Draco famous. He just wants to kill him. Ugh. And hurt Lucius. He doesn't even want to kill Draco because he has any feelings about Draco. He wants to kill Draco to punish Lucius. It's evil. I mean, obviously, it's Voldemort. And, like, maybe if he succeeds, like, okay, I took a good bet there. Yeah. That's fucked up. Whew. Moving on to the actual villain, Lovo. A thing that is very interesting to me, and we've talked about this in other conversations before is the pathology that is developing here that's very familiar in terms of the psychopathology of someone like a serial killer which is the trophy collecting thing Mm. his obsession with trinkets essentially is something that you see in a lot of narratives of really scary particularly gruesome serial killers is they keep shit from their victims his obsession with objects and with using stuff to prove his power and to remind himself of his power and also items being where he stores pieces of himself and really fundamental pieces of his story just interestingly compares to me to some of our great muggle psychopaths and how objects are incredibly important in their sort of like self-made stories. 
I also think that his obsession with objects is interesting because it reminds us that he comes from this background of deprivation. Yeah. And having things was really important to him from a young age because he sort of came into the world with nothing. So overall, I just think his obsession with objects and trinkets is very compelling and well done. It's an interesting lens through which to view Voldemort. Because I always sort of saw him as more of like a political figure, but there's also this kind of personal sickness that he has. Yeah, and you know, we talked about last time whether he is driven more ideologically or more by his own pathologies, and I would argue the latter. I don't think that he... I think he's made into a political totem for people that do have an ideology, but I think he's driven by a lot of really specific personal beliefs and grudges and desires, and I don't think most of those are political. I think his obsession with Hogwarts history is political. But it's... He's sort of like a... He's sort of like... I really like his obsession with, like, antiques. He's trying to, like, appropriate these symbols of, like, wizarding history and, like, use them for his own ends to, like, further his own, like, vision, you know? What's political about that? I don't know. The way people try to, like, use the Lincoln Memorial... Right, or like the American flag even, you know? uh, As talismans of kind of who they are. Yeah, to, like, show that, like their way is the right way, you know? So I for me the Hogwarts items is more about the accumulation of a certain kind of power to me. Yeah. But I don't know, I think it feels more personal. I think it's it's sort of a warped version and Harry even recognizes this of Harry's own feelings about Hogwarts where it's the only sense of home he's ever felt. And so Voldemort, every time he has an emotion or an experience, he feels the desire to have ownership over that. Mm. So he has this whole thing with death and, you know, he's sort of forged by his mother's death and then by the murder of his parents. And it gives him the sense that he should be able to kind of possess death. Because the Hallows then are the same way. Like, these books become kind of fundamentally about objects and about the accumulation of power through stuff and how sort of like personal symbolism and personal accumulation of the items of power kind of like imbues power. Both of them are collections, basically. And I just think it's interesting that he's so obsessed with trophies. It's also a good, it's a good, like, plot driver. Well, because it's easy, like, get the stuff. You need those MacGuffins. Yeah, that's true. No, it is a good plot driver, but I think it says a lot about Voldemort's obsession with possessing shit. Right. And with shit being his and his alone. And he sort of wants Hogwarts to be his. And he wants to own the experience of Hogwarts because it's like the only good experience he's ever had. But he's not capable of feeling just like love and affection and sort of nostalgia toward it. So he's one of those kids that comes back after they graduated, like kind of did too many football games, you know? Or like hanging <laughs> All on the, the green plays. room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. Just couldn't get over high Except school. Except he's that kid that's but randomly yeah. stealing like clarinets from the band room and putting a soul into them so that's different i don't know bit. this metaphor i don't know <laughs> if this metaphor holds up but um, um 
I think one of the things Voldemort's obsession with Hogwarts illustrates is Rowling's belief in, it sounds kind of cheesy, but the power of education, especially teachers, to like mold minds, really. It, it, it shows like an abiding faith in the idea of school itself. Like the books become... The books become a literal battle for Hogwarts. They end in the Battle of Hogwarts. I am surprised you have remained here so long, said Voldemort after a short pause. I always wondered why a wizard such as yourself never wished to leave school. Well, said Dumbledore, still smiling, to a wizard such as myself, there can be nothing more important than passing on ancient skills, helping hone young minds. If I remember correctly, you once saw the attraction of teaching, too. I see it still, said Voldemort. I merely wondered why you, who are so often asked for advice by the Ministry, and who have twice, I think, been offered the post of Minister. Three times at the last count, actually, said Dumbledore. But the Ministry never attracted me as a career. Again, something we have in common, I think. It really situates something that is true right now in Muggle culture, in America certainly, which is sort of the academy as the site of the culture wars. Mm -hmm. The place where the ideas that matter widely in the wizarding world are really fomented is at Hogwarts and led by what a lot of parents see as an activist teaching staff. Led by Dumbledore, who is... Who eschews actual political power to... Right. Well, not actual political power. Dumbledore does have but real power. Who eschews a role in government in mm -hmm. order to pursue what he sees as more important political power, which is the ability to shape the conversation via the next generation. And I think Dumbledore has other reasons for doing that as well, which we kind of will explore in Book 7. But, yeah. But he does actually amass much more ideological and political clout leading the academy than he would leading the government. Ross Douthat, of all people, at the New York Times actually wrote about it, a conservative columnist. And I mean, like, I don't know, he's not everybody's jam, but um, I thought this was sort of an interesting column. He's sort of like, A, read another book, which, you know, even liberals or like that occasionally, but... Uh, more, liberals are more often like that than conservatives, I find. <laughs> Which is a fair argument, but we can also... We do read other books. We can also um, read another so book. So Ross Douthat last year, uh, around the 20th anniversary of uh, the Harry Potter publication, he wrote about this focus on the Academy within Harry Potter. And to him, it shows this sort of misguided, progressive obsession with purifying elite schools the idea is that if only like harvard can be like set to rights and all the douchebag slytherins expelled then like the world will be like healed and whole even though there's this whole world of muggles that you're giving like no agency to who don't have like access to these like hallowed halls yeah it's sort of an interest it's sort of an interesting thesis i was gonna say ross douthat is definitely not my cup of tea but I find this to be a fairly compelling argument actually because and you know my question here is is this a loving or a cynical take from JK Rowling because on the one hand I do think 
that she truly believes in the power of teaching. And I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. The idea that being a person who communes with young people and sort of sets them on their path is a really noble and a really important and sort of the most fundamental work that you can do. But on the other hand, she does seem like the kind of public figure that would be like, universities are too PC. So I wonder if there is some cynicism in her writing Dumbledore as this amasser of basically progressive power within the hallowed halls of an elite school. Right. Yeah, because Ross points out that Hogwarts is not meritocratic. And it's, wizards it's are... It's deeply exclusive, and wizards are very, like... Fundamentally like, elitist. Right, yeah. Even the most, I guess what you would say, open-minded wizards, the Weasleys, are super fucking weird about muggles. And house elves, and, and goblins. Yeah. So I'm weirdly in some agreement with Ross <laughs> doubt that. And I do think that's wow, an interesting... Wow, that's a first. I know, and I do think that's an interesting comparison to how we believe that if we could only... I do think that there is a certain kind of white left, but not... I don't think it's progressives, though. I think there's a certain kind of white, Democrat, neoliberal type that thinks that making Harvard mostly Democrats is the way to win the culture wars, which is bonkers. I don't think it's party is... Well, okay, but liberal but not progressive. Yeah. I, I wouldn't call this an actual, like, progressive effort. Because I think real, the sort of new crop of diverse and kind of, the new crop of more diverse and equity and social justice oriented Democrats give less of a shit about the academy because they know it's mostly white and privileged. Right. And that's not actually where you win the culture wars, is among white, highly educated elitists. And yeah, I I think there are some interesting analogies here. Yeah. And and Harry Potter, you know, it's so weird because it's economics make no sense, but it is a very neoliberal story about a false meritocracy where people have sort of arbitrary power that they wield often unethically. And it's interesting to me and it's sort of realistic to me that the Academy is at the center of that. Yeah. And that the leader of the wizarding, basically like the leader of the free world is the headmaster of the school rather than, I mean, fucking Rufus Scrimgeour isn't the leader of the wizarding world in any meaningful sense it's Dumbledore and his great power stems from the fact that he controls the minds of the kids and the kids (laughs) the the non-Slytherin kids Dumbledore is undoubtable like we see over and over that people do not question Dumbledore's judgment despite the fact that Dumbledore has genuinely terrible judgment but his politics and his ideology are the letter of the law among what we would what who would probably consider themselves progressive wizards. Yeah, I mean the progressive reactionary like it doesn't quite translate to the wizarding world because it's like a fantasy fucking world. Obviously it doesn't. But, like um, our politics don't translate perfectly. Yeah. But I do think JK Rowling has a really interesting line on the power of elite education to shape the cultural narrative. And I mean, yeah. And, and Ro- Ross's argument is that it like way overstates it. Oh yeah, I mean, Ross always way overstates it. Also, Ross doesn't understand why people like things that are good. 
pretty regularly, Ross is like, I don't get what everybody's so into about this thing that's beloved. And, you know, Voldemort knows just as well as Dumbledore knows how powerful school life is in the wizarding world. That's why he wants to teach Defense Against the Dark Arts. And that's why he's obsessed with Hogwarts history. Right. Because Hogwarts is the most powerful institution in the wizarding world. And always has been. There has never been a government that is more powerful than Hogwarts. No, That right. we've seen in the wizarding world. It is the seat of power in this world. Yeah. Literal magic, far more magic powers than, like, the Ministry. Like, the Ministry topples, like, that. It's true. And Hogwarts is the final battle of this war. And the heart of the Wizarding World. It is a battle for the very soul of this culture. And Voldemort keys into that really quickly. Because, you know, frankly, he's really fucking smart, unfortunately. (laughs) He has massive blind spots that are his, you know, undoing. But... This is a really smart move of his. And Dumbledore knows that. And Dumbledore is like, I have to keep you out of here because you cannot have any power in this, the seat of power. So, Heather, who's your unsung hero? Oh, my God. Besides Ross Talvin. God, never spit those words out. Never (laughs) is Ross Talvin my unsung hero. Um, My unsung hero is Luna Lovegood, whose commentary on the Quidditch match is gold. And... Even Ron is like, you should probably do all the commentary. That was hilarious. And Harry is kind of irritated because she didn't like really talk about the game. But she's often like, I don't know. Zachariah Smith seems like kind of a dick. But there he goes. He has the quaffle. Anyway, wow, the sun is really glistening off the hoops in a pretty way. I think she's a great sports commentator. I would <laughs> if I would watch like NBA games that she narrated for sure. <laughs> the rift tracks. She would just yeah. I mean, basically, she would just be like, she would think what I did. She would she would just talk about how much fucking soul Rashawn Holmes has. <laughs> Very yeah, bench player for the Phoenix Suns, who I'm uh, obsessed the, with right now. <laughs> guys, scrappy. He hustles he really he's hustles. always just there and luna would be talking about that rather than whether he could actually play basketball he's okay at basketball he's fine at basketball i mean he's but one I, of the top one percent i just of basketball really believe in, in his heart yeah he's uh he commits a lot of fouls which i also find sort of like rascally in a <laughs> charming way i don't know anything about basketball except that i've been watching a lot of suns games with alex which it's sorry horrible to yeah. be a suns fan oh, right now so bad except i really like rashawn holmes yeah and DeAndre Ayton is cute. That is true. Devin Booker is really cute too. Okay, so basically I think some of the sons are cute and that Rashawn Holmes has heart. <laughs> and that is basically what Luna's commentary is like. <laughs> Except she's not as vapid as me, so she doesn't talk about who's cute. What are you going to do? My unsung hero is Albus Dumbledore. So Voldemort interviews for a job. We're meant to think that it's out of the question. I don't know if it's out of the question for Dumbledore, given some of his other hires. I could see him thinking to himself, hmm, maybe I should bring on Voldemort just to keep an eye on him. I can see him making this hire. This is a moment where Dumbledore is an unsung hero because he doesn't make a really bad choice. (laughs) Which is totally within his purview. I think there's a universe where Dumbledore totally hires Professor Riddle. Professor or, Voldemort. I guess, yeah. Professor, Would he be you, Professor, Professor Lord Voldemort? <laughs> this is Professor Lord Voldemort. Uh, that's a lot to put on his office door. Or <laughs> I Lord, wonder what he would go. Or Lord Professor Voldemort. 
Or maybe he just make them call him Lord Voldemort. A new anagram. Yeah, is he like Lord Voldemort in class? Like, that doesn't make sense. Whatever. Well, maybe that's why Dumbledore doesn't hire him. He's like, this is going to be confusing with your name. <laughs> this week's episode is brought to you by the Hogwarts Hospital Wing. When you're here, your family. I. That's all. That's all, Olive Garden. Uh, I couldn't think of a good slogan. <laughs> what? I can't think of a good Hogwarts Hospital slogan. The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, and an excellent performance it is. We learned how to say Bezor. Bezor? Yes, Bezor. How do you say Jeff Bezos' name? Jeff Bezor. <laughs> Founder of Amazon. Just shove a Bezos down his throat. I think it's, is it Bezos or Bezos? It's Bezos. I Bezos. Bezos? Oh, man. B-A-E-Zos. No, he's the opposite of a bay. He looks like a little turtle. <laughs> you can... He's getting divorced. I know. His wife is about to become, like, one of the richest women in the world just by divorcing him. Which, get yours, girl. <laughs> Mackenzie Bezos. We are here for it. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you do so if that happens to be apple podcasts we would love a rating and a review from you um they're all very kind and we read them all i hope it's not mean but i guess if you need to be mean that's just the kind of person you are so do you you can follow us what i don't think people should be mean in reviews (laughs) people would be like why are you quoting ross douthat on on this podcast (laughs) one star one why did you have a ross Uh, douthat column that you said was a good argument i don't know i thought it was an interesting argument yeah, what he comes it? up with, I never quite know what he's going to say. Uh, broken clock is right twice a day. He said some weird stuff about sex robots, but, you know. You can find us on social media, at Quibbler Podcast, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can email us at quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. We promise we're going to do a mailbag soon, so please keep sending e-owls. We do read them and love them. And we will share them on an episode. I mean, not all of them, because there's a lot. But we will share some on an episode coming up. So please send us your thoughts. We love them. Next time, we will be reading the chapters called The Unknowable Room and After the Burial. We will, however, be on vacation for a week. So we're not positive we're going to be able to get an episode out after this one. So you might be waiting a week. And we apologize for that. And our spate of lots of travel coming back to back will be over after that. For a while. So we'll talk to you when we talk to you. Thanks, amigos. Yeah, I'm really going to tell you because it's your business, Potter, sneered Malfoy. You'd better hurry up, they'll be waiting for the chosen captain, the boy who scored whatever they call you these days. It's the season premiere of Antiques Roadshow. My kids say it's ugly. I don't ever spend more than $9.99 on art. Well, it's the best, right? I'm flabbergasted. Suddenly want a beer. Helga Hufflepuff's as you very well know, you clever boy. This has been handed down in the family for years and years. If this cup were to come in, no provenance, just a great find with no maker, 
it would be worth about $800. Uh -huh. Because of the importance and because we have a direct line of descendants from the gift all the way to now, we are 100% sure of that. I would put an insurance value of $25,000 on You're the cover. You do spoil this old lady, Tom.